The title for today's sermon is Denials and Trials, and it's taken from Luke 22, verses 54 through 71. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day, this day of life that we live, this day in which we live and move and breathe, this day in which we move and breathe and can glorify you in our bodies. Help us, Lord, to live out your life through us as we follow the principles of Scripture. And it's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen. As you might remember, I earned my undergraduate degree in history. So that means I've always been fascinated by the past. This included World War II. One of the results of the war was the infamous war crimes trials held at Nuremberg, Germany, where the leading Nazis were brought to justice and judged by those from England, France, the Soviet Union, and the United States. Twenty-two Nazis were tried for crimes against humanity, including war crimes and murder. But Nuremberg was much more than a trial of Nazi thugs. It was the establishment of the public record of the horrific crimes. Recently, there's been a sick and malicious attack which denies the Holocaust as having ever happened. To mitigate such, against such possibilities, the prosecutors at Nuremberg assembled a mountain of evidence against the Nazis. This evidence included the murderer's own words, which was then used to convict them of these horrible crimes. Before the end of the war, the Nazis attempted to destroy the existing historical record. The Allies' bombing helped them in that attempt. And yet millions of documents survived. More than 3,000 tons of records was discovered and submitted at the trial in Nuremberg. In 1958, the U.S. National Archives actually assembled 92 volumes of these captured records. Also found and cataloged, which included the documentation of uh, records, was mountains of gold, cash, stolen artwork, and historical films. Much of this treasure, if you will, was discovered in a mine, a salt mine outside of Merkers, Germany. The prosecutors used this evidence to reconstruct the events of the Holocaust. As you know, the Gestapo and the Eisengruppen documented their killing units that were assigned to eradicate Jews and other undesirables from the Nazi Third Reich. This was central in the conviction of the perps at trial. Inexplicably, the Nazis filmed all of their crimes from the very beginning. It seems that they wanted proof that the sick ideology which they were fostering on the world was being implemented. The Allies gathered all of this photographic evidence of the mass murder and the butchery, and it was this visual record which was the turning point at this trial in Nuremberg. It brought to life the evil of the Nazis for all to see. Also presented were the, were the eyewitnesses, of which there were two kinds. The first offered was the testimony of the perpetrators of the crime, and then the survivors. Those who ran the machinery of death proudly defended their atrocities. They gave direct testimony and took responsibility for its implementation, but excused it by saying they were simply following the legitimate orders of their supervisors. Hermann Goering, Otto Ortloff, Rudolf Hose, and others gave testimony to the gassing and to the killing of millions of Jews, Poles, and Russians and other undesirables. Then came the testimony of the survivors who had directly experienced the horrors of their policies. Their testimony was personal and compelling. Survivors like Eli Weisel gave a detailed recounting of the treatment that they received in concentration camps and provided the witness as being the targets of the genocide of the Nazis. All of this taken together, all of this taken together, the mountains of documents, the photographs, the film archives, along with the perpetrator and survivor testimony, provides an undeniable witness of the Holocaust. And yet today, many try to do just that, to deny it. As an aside, let me say this. 
we must acknowledge today that there is a mountain of evidence of a Holocaust taking place at this very moment. We have thousands of documents, numerous photographs, unlimited film, as well as the testimony of the perpetrators on YouTube and the survivors of the Islamo-fascist Holocaust that is taking place right now in this world. Christians are being beheaded, crucified, buried alive, and gunned down in their homes and streets in the Middle East because of their beliefs. My question is, where is America are we going to repeat the sins of World War II where we just ignored what was taking place in Nazi Germany and its lands? We also, at that time, had a pacifist democratic president who refused to get involved and stop the slaughter of the millions. Irrefutable proof has been presented then and now of this taking place. And just as 50 million innocents died in World War II, so they die today because good men have done nothing. This all stopped when there was a holocaust of our own at Pearl Harbor. Are we waiting for another Pearl Harbor, or will the blood of the innocents, of the martyrs, cry out? Have we not learned our lesson? I pray we have. Well, just as the wackos deny that there was ever a holocaust in Europe, people deny that Islamofascism is coming to America and is a present and ever-present danger. We are being told over and over again that Islam is a religion of peace. But the evidence is contrary to that. It is a religion of war and annihilation. The Nazis tried to proclaim that they wanted peace. You'll remember the leader of England waving uh, very famously the peace agreement with Hitler. So the liberals today try to teach us that uh, the Islamofascists desire peace as well with America. Will it take another Sudetenland, another Poland for America to wake up? Is the historical record shaking its head in disbelief it is what is going on, that evil can reign in this world without good men doing anything? The truth is there has always been and always will be a war between good and evil in this world. It takes good men to stop evil. Well, we've seen this battle taking place in our own lives. There's a battle within us between good and evil. And it will only be won when we follow the dictates of Scripture, the principles of the Word of God. Peter suffered with this battle between good and evil in his own life. If he was going to win that battle within himself, he needed to take responsibilities for his actions. He must find the culpability of his own choices in order to rectify them and change. Today, we look at Peter's three denials and at Jesus' six trials, or at least the beginning of them. Now, let me say this from the get-go. We won't be spending much time covering these denials or these trials. We will give them a quick examination. Now, scholars have suggested that these six trials actually consisted of three religious trials and three secular trials. The most common reconstruction of these events of the last days of Christ goes something like this. Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He then faced his first religious trial before Annas. The second religious trial took place before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night. His third religious trial took place immediately following that with the Sanhedrin at daybreak. His fourth trial, the first of three secular trials, was before Pilate. He was then sent to Herod where his fifth trial took place. And finally he was returned to Pilate for his sixth and last trial in which he was condemned to death. This reconstruction from the Gospels is, however, not without Problems. This historical record has been discussed at length by many more capable than, capable than myself of trying to mesh all of the different facts from the different Gospels together. We are not going to examine the timing and the nature of these trials. That's not our task. Our task this morning is to look at the life of Peter and see the consequences of his choices and also to look at the choices that the Jewish leaders made concerning Jesus. 
One of the big questions that's found in Scripture is what is the culpability of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' death? Did they violate their own rules when they condemned Jesus to death? Well, as I said, we will leave a lot of the machinations, the details to those who are more knowledgeable than myself and have had more time to examine the text and put those things together. But we will dive into this text in Luke and look for the details of the events as as recorded by him. Now, from a cursory looking at the scripture, we can deny, we can... Uh, we can detail these events in three ways, three sections, if you will. In, in verses 54 through 62, we find Peter's denials. In the second section, we find his first trial before Annas and the mocking by the temple police in verses 63 through 65. And then the last section is his appearance before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night for the first trial in verses 66 through 71. Next week, we will look at the other trials as Luke lays them out. He does not give all of the details about all of the trials. Well, with that, as our introduction, would you please turn with me to Luke chapter 22 and verse 54. My goal is to finish the chapter this morning. Now, if you didn't bring a copy of the scriptures with you, you can always find it in our Pew Bible. That's right in front of you, and uh, it's found on page 1053. As you'll recall from last week, Jesus was taken prisoner in the Garden of Gethsemane by the temple police and many others who accompanied them. And now in verse 54, we continue reading when it says, Having arrested Jesus, having arrested Jesus, they led him away, and they brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter, but Peter was following at a distance. The perp, Jesus, is placed in restraints, and he's led away by a contingent of temple police and Roman soldiers. Now, you would have thought that they would have taken him to jail. But instead of taking him to the Roman lockup, they take him directly to the home of the high, and get this, priests. That's plural. We learned from Matthew that the high priest currently was a man named Caiaphas, but he shared a large mansion, if you will, with his father-in-law, Annas, who was the former high priest. High priests reigned in Israel for one year under the guidance of the Roman emperor. Annas is considered by most, the former high priest, to be the power in Israel when it came to the religious activities and state affairs. Now, we uh, learn from Luke that uh, not every one of these trials is recorded by him. And so there's a trial before Caiaphas that is not actually uh, mentioned by um, Luke in his gospel record. So the earlier reconstruction I mentioned is not uh, a complete compilation of all the events. Now, this verse states that they led him away, that is Jesus, the perpetrator that they arrested, and they brought him to the house of the high priest. Obviously, their intent from the very beginning had been prearranged. Their intent was to bring him to the high priest and not the Roman lockup and to deal with him religiously. As I said, the appointed high priest at this time was Caiaphas, and his appointment was for one year, the year before Annas had been the high priest. And John tells us that he was taken to see Annas instead of Caiaphas. And since they lived in the same mansion large uh, house with many wings, uh, he would be later taken to Caiaphas, which is just a short walk to his home. So the transition would have been very short. Here we read that Peter was following Jesus at a distance. So Jesus is taken to the high priest's house, and and, and Peter follows him, but way back. Much has been said about this. Much has been made about this in sermons and books. Many have criticized Peter for following the Lord from afar. But we should remember that Jesus had warned his disciples about this. If Peter had obeyed the Lord and stayed away, he would not have found himself in the situation that we look at this morning. But he did follow. And when they arrived at the high priest, he went into the courtyard. We learned from John that John actually got him entrance into the courtyard because he knew the maid that oversaw the entrance. So he's in the courtyard as we read verse 55. 
And after they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, he, that is Peter, sat down and was sitting among them. I'm reminded of Psalm chapter 1, which says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Here Peter is sitting in the seat of the enemies of our Lord Jesus. He's surrounded by the, by the high priest servants and the Roman soldiers perhaps, and perhaps the temple police. He's kept his distance from them, but now he has worked his way into the midst of them. And uh, since Jerusalem is 2,600 feet above sea level, it gets cold at night in the springtime. And so they've lit a fire to knock away the frigid temperatures that were taking place. And uh, as they are sitting warming themselves, Peter moves in a little bit closer to that fire to warm his hands, and when he does so, we read in verse 56, a servant girl could see him in the firelight and was looking intently at him when she said, this man, this man was with him too. And John, we learn that she's the doorkeeper. She's given him and John access to the courtyard Apparently there was some relationship between him and her and the young, young man, John. But suddenly she's looking at him and she's thinking to herself that he's not one of the temple guards. He's not one of the Roman soldiers. He's not wearing a uniform. Who is he? I don't recognize him as being one of the household servants. He must have been with Jesus. So this maid, this servant girl, this doorkeeper, staring at Peter, scrutinizing him, yells out that she has been with him. This is the first of Peter's denials. We find it in verse 27. He's sitting in the seat of the scoffers when he is attacked by this young girl, saying that he was with her, and here's his response. Woman, I don't even know him. This is the first challenge concerning Peter's relationship to Christ. From this point forward, all of his denials will become progressively more vehement. Here he simply denies personal knowledge of Jesus. So what is Peter really saying here? He's saying that he doesn't know him. That indicates a personal association. Well, we know that Peter's been with Jesus for three and a half years. He's ate with him. He's lived with him. He's dined with him. He's slept in the same campsite with him. And now he's telling this young girl that he can't even place him. Jesus? Jesus who? I don't, I don't know who he is. Now, some of us, in truth, would like to deny that we know an ex-husband or an ex-wife. But then we'd never equate them with the Savior. This is a stunning reversal of truth that Peter would deny his relationship with Christ. I love the way he talks to her. Woman, I don't even know him. Reminds me of Mike Hall. Just a little time later, Peter is recognized by another. However, this time it's not a woman. It's a man. Looking at verse 58. A little later, another saw him and said, You're one of them too. And Peter said, Man, I am not. The pronoun you in this sentence is pushed all the way to the front of the Greek sentence as a way of giving emphasis. You, you're one of them too. This is the second challenge concerning Peter's relationship to Christ. Now Luke doesn't identify this man other than to say that he's another man. And this guy goes way beyond what the slave girl has asserted about Christ's relationship uh, Peter's relationship with Christ. He's asserting that he's one of the band of brothers, that he's actually one of the disciples. In other words, Peter wasn't just an interesting spectator following Jesus. He wasn't a hanger-on. He wasn't inquisitive about this guy that's in an upper window having been arrested. Rather, he is one of them. Peter flatly denies any personal relationship here with the disciples. He says, no, I am not one of them. I'm not one of the twelve. I'm not one of his disciples. So he's denied a relationship with Christ. Now he denies a relationship with his closest friends. Those who he's experienced life with and suffered with and ate with and walked on water before. He denies all of this. 
Peter was with these men when Jesus raised his mother-in-law off a sickbed, and yet he denies all of this for the sake of his own skin. And in verse 59 it says that after an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean. This is the third challenge to Peter's relationship with Christ, and by far the most serious This, again, unidentified man accuses Peter of being a Jesus follower for very good reason. In the Gospel of John, we learn that this man is actually a relative of Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off just a few hours before. This made the man much more motivated in scrutinizing Peter. He insists with no uncertainty. He's giving witness to the fact that Peter is a disciple of Jesus and the giveaway is his accent. Judeans could always identify a Galilean by their heavy, guttural sounds that they made when they spoke Aramaic. So Peter couldn't hide the fact that he was from Weatherford. It was obvious to all, his deep southern accent. Notice the clarity. Notice the clarity of the accusation by this man. He might have even been pointing to Jesus that could be seen in the window in the upper floors of the large palace that was before them. He's one of them who was with that teacher, is what he's saying. Peter starts to sweat. Can you imagine his hands sweating, the sweat beating on his forehead as he had been identified as being one of them. And yet it's cold enough outside that you need to have a a fire going. He responds to this accusation, this third accusation, by saying, man, I don't even know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a roaster, a roaster, a rooster crowed. The roaster crowed. Uh, Again, Peter denies any personal relationship with Christ. I find it very interesting, however, that Luke omits the reference that's found in all the other gospel writers that Peter cursed at this point. He swore up and down and and cursed at the fellow that he didn't know who Jesus was. Clearly, we can say that Luke is trying to protect the the, the reputation of Peter by giving him plausible deniability. That's what Peter's doing. He's, I don't even know this guy. Who is he? I never heard of him. Who is this? Jesus? Is that his name? Is that what you're saying? I don't even know what you're talking about. In fact, I learned all about this guy in the TV reports. That's the first time I heard about him. Peter repudiates any relationship with Jesus and, in fact, curses him for even intimating that he knew him. And it was at that moment that the cock crowed. Jesus had warned him. He said that he was going to be tempted. Jesus said, the devil wants to sift you. And now Peter was being shaken. Up, down, left, and right. The devil was jerking him around in this temptation. All of this could have been avoided by Peter if he had just done what he should have. We read in the book of Ephesians that he could have prepared with all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, he had not been on the alert with all perseverance and petition of all the saints. Peter, all he needed to do was prepare ahead of time by being in prayer for this temptation that was going to come his way. You see, Peter was a rich target of the evil one. And it was at that moment when the fiery darts of the evil one struck home that the cock crowed. And both men heard it. Both the Lord and his servant, Peter, heard it. For we read in verse 61 that the Lord turned. The Lord turned in that upper room and he looked down at the fire directly into Peter's eyes. And he looked at Peter. Peter remembered the word of the Lord. All of a sudden he remembered who Jesus was. He remembered the word of the Lord and how he had told him, before a rooster crows, today you will deny me three times. Again, much has been made of this text and the look of Jesus. Jesus' look, what was it? Was it a look of disappointment? If it was, it must have devastated Peter's heart. When I was a kid, me and my three brothers were always getting in trouble 
And we would always dread when we got home and we would get the look from the old man, that look of displeasure. We knew what it meant, that we were in trouble and there was about to be an accountability. Well, maybe Jesus was communicating to Peter something at that moment in the look. Surely he was disappointed in him. Now, many commentators have made a mountain out of a molehill with this look, saying it meant this, it meant that. I think it's pretty simply obvious that Jesus was communicating a level of disappointment and displeasure. Otherwise, how could we explain Peter's reaction? We read in verse 62 that Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter was weeping. He just didn't cry. He just didn't shed a tear. He broke down and wept. The Greek word that's used here for bitterly is pikros, which carries the idea of suffering, great mental suffering. He was heartbroken. But there was no time for Peter to focus on his feelings. This was the Lord's hour, as you know, and it was also the hour of the evil one. For the cosmos was about about to be affected by what was taking place on this day. We read of the first trial of Jesus before Annas, beginning in verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And again, a lot has been made of this, especially in movies like The Passion of the Christ. But Luke is one of the only Gospels that actually mentions the mistreatment of Jesus. One of the Gospels never even mentions that. But here we see the temple police were busy. They were busy beating up Jesus and making fun of him, mocking him. When we speak of the abuse today by the police, as we have seen in in, uh, Uh, the news over the last few weeks, we should know that that pales in comparison to what happened to Jesus. These temple guards were tasked with protecting innocent life and ensuring justice, but instead what happened was they were psychopaths who were freed to vent their anger and frustration on innocent people like Jesus. We read here that they beat him. They mocked him. They made fun of Jesus. They brought up his reputation and sullied it. So we see Jesus is the target here. He's not only the target of their abuse, but of a game. We might call that blind man's bluff today. This is where they would blindfold the individual, the target, if you will, and then all of the men would take, would take a turn hitting the victim, all except for one. And then the one who is blindfolded, the victim who is being hit, is asked if he could tell who was the one that was not hitting him. Jesus, if you're a prophet, tell us who's not beating you. We see that in verse 64. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophecy, who is the one who hit you? In the Gospel of Matthew, we learn more about this abuse of Jesus by the temple police and the Roman soldiers. It not only included verbal and physical abuse, but he was spit upon and denigrated and humiliated. Now, these are professional soldiers, and yet they had become psychopathic and sociopathic in their behavior. They liked to torment others. So they were saying these hurtful things and many other things against Jesus and even blaspheming him. It's ironic, isn't it, that the one who was accused of being a blasphemer, that was his crime, so so said the Jewish authorities, and yet these men, controlled by those same Jewish authorities, make Jesus the object of their blasphemy. Later on, the apostles and the Christians of the New Testament era would also be charged with blasphemy as well. In the book of Acts, we learn that the early Christians were said to be cannibals. Remember? They were accused of drinking the blood and eating the body of Christ. Now, the closing verses of uh, chapter 22 give us the truth details of his first trial before the Sanhedrin, the one that took place in the middle of the night and that many say was illegal. Now, these details must be compiled from all four Gospels to get a very clear account. When we read Luke, we must remember that he is giving us his picture and for his purposes in writing. And we can see that that these trials had two stages. First, there was a Jewish trial in which the condemned... Jesus was um, 
brought to trial in order to find some excuse to have him executed. And then the Jews brought him to the Romans for a civil trial in order to implement that execution, which was illegal according to Jewish law. So there's this first trial, which is really nothing more than an informal examination by Annas, the former high priest, during the middle of the night at his palace. And at daybreak, there would be a second trial by the full complement of the Sanhedrin led by the high priest in order to condemn Jesus. Luke skips much of these details and just goes right to the point in verse 66. Let's look there. When it was day, so we're now skipped past Annas and we've gone directly to the, to the Sanhedrin, the council of elders of the people assembled, which included both the chief priests, the scribes, and they led him away to the council chamber. Now, if the trial of Jesus at night before Annas occurred on the 14th of Nisan, that's the night of the 14th, then this trial by the Sanhedrin would have taken place on Friday morning, the 15th of Nisan. So then, that fits the biblical narrative. Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. on the day before uh, the uh, Sabbath and was removed from the cross at 3 p.m. and buried before sundown. That all fits. Here we learn that the Sanhedrin includes the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and they meet in the so-called council chambers. This is a description of 70 men who led Israel. They determined all of the civil laws and the religious laws for the Jewish people. Uh, But again, they could not... They could not put someone to death. That was illegal. That could only be done by the Roman governor. The phrase used here, council of elders of the people, is really a synonym for the Sanhedrin. And the place they meet, the council chambers, is really a place that has its own name, the Chamber of Hewn Stone. Well, Jesus is brought to the Sanhedrin. He meets with them. They are in a semicircle around him with the high priest circling him, making his accusations against Jesus. Now, we know the outcome of this. They knew what the outcome was. It's because there was a rush to judgment, you might call it. They had already indicated what the ruling would be. So this really isn't a trial. It's more of a kangaroo court, if you will. So Luke makes a beeline to the point of this trial by the Sanhedrin. The claim of Jesus in verse 67, if you are the Christ, then tell us. Well, they don't believe he's the Christ. They never would believe he's the Christ. They've been chasing him for three years to kill him because of this claim that he made in various ways without coming out and actually stating it in the way that they wanted to hear it. So, Luke dispenses with what we find in the other Gospels. There's no time spent on the interviews of witnesses who had been paid off. There's no time spent on any evidence being presented. Luke goes right to the point, Jesus' testimony. He focuses on two questions that are posed by the Sanhedrin, though I'm sure there was many more. The first question is the one that is of great importance. They ask Jesus in verse 67, if he claims to be the Christ. If you are the Christ, tell us. Well, they will get a sort of direct answer from Jesus to whether or not he is the Messiah or the Christ or the only Son of God, as he has been claiming. However, there must be some interplay between them first. They want a direct answer about the person of Christ so that they can condemn him and kill him. It's implied in the question, if you are the Christ. Isn't that what you say you are? But they know that he is not. So they have revealed their hand already. Their minds are made up, as I said. The truth is, the truth is, Jesus has been showing them for years that he is the Christ. Many of them have seen miracles that Jesus has done. They've heard his teaching again and again in the temple as Jesus taught openly before them. And yet they refuse to believe the mountains of evidence and the testimony that he gave Are you the Christ? Of course he is. Hasn't he been showing them? Well, here Jesus responds to them saying, If I tell you, you won't believe me anyway. You see, they had been waiting for the Messiah. The Jews are still waiting for the Messiah. They don't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. No matter how much evidence was given, no matter how many 
prophecies Jesus fulfilled, they would not believe because they didn't want the kind of Messiah that Jesus was. They wanted a Messiah that would come and rule and reign over Israel, a great king who would save them from their oppressor, the Romans. They expected the Messiah to come riding on a white steed and all of a sudden raise up these armies out of Israel, out of the populace, and defeat the Romans. A conquering hero, if you will. But that's not the Messiah that God sent, nor was it the Messiah Jesus was. So they would refuse to believe his testimony no matter how powerful it was and clear it was. Now, we see Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53. We saw that last week in our text. There it said that the Messiah who would come would be a sinless one and that he would suffer and that he would die at the hands of godless men. And yet they denied it. They refused to believe it. In effect, Jesus says here, it's useless to discuss this matter with you because no matter whatever I do, you're prejudiced and you won't believe it. You know, there are people like that in the world today. No matter how much you tell them, show them, prove to them, they won't believe the witness that's given to them because they are prejudiced against it. These men aren't open to the truth. They aren't open to the Messiah who's revealed to them in the Scripture because they believe and hold as sacrosanct their traditions. There are many in the world today that are just like these men, blinded to the truth, blinded to the literalness of the Word of God because they are following their traditions. Now, in Jesus' answer that he gives here, beginning in verse 68, we see that he is guarded and a bit mysterious. It's not as simple as the NASV translates it in verse 69. It's guarded, if you will. Jesus understood their question. He understood that it was fruitless to answer them because they were only there to condemn him. I'm sort of reminded of those race hustlers that have been uh, running around in uh, Ferguson, Missouri. You know, they're blinded to the truth. All they want to do is convict the cop. It doesn't matter what the truth is. They're not going to wait for the evidence. And no matter what evidence is provided, they're already settled in their decision. The trial of Jesus was just a mockery. This trial of Jesus. Notice in verse 68, he says, if he were to ask a question, they wouldn't answer. They weren't interested in justice or fairness or a trial. They don't even present any evidence or credible witnesses. They're just there to incriminate Jesus. They wanted him, however, to admit that he was the Messiah so that they could find him guilty for it. But Jesus gives them something quite different. He gives them the prediction of his exaltation in verse 69. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they're going, huh? Are you the Christ? Huh? They wanted a direct answer. Well, Jesus gives them one. It's the one that they did not want, though. One that they did not understand necessarily. Of course, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament, to Scripture. He quotes here a mixture of Psalm 110 and then uh, Daniel 7. So what we're getting here is two partial quotes put together. In Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Now, many liberals in our world, in the religious world, have said that Jesus never claims to be God. Well, that's not true, because this verse puts that to shame. Here's equating himself to God, a very God, that he's sitting right next to the Father in heaven, a seat of privilege and power. And Jesus conflates Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, verse 13, as I said, where Daniel wrote, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with, with the clouds of heaven, like one, the Son of Man, was coming, and he came up to the ancients of days and was presented before him. He merges these two, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Father of power. So here we see Jesus claims, as only the Messiah could, the messianic title of the Son of Man directly from the book of Daniel. He is the Son of Man who will sit on the right hand of God. And you know the right hand is always the power, the the position of power because that was the hand that wielded the, the sword. Power. 
But the key to understanding what Jesus is saying here in verse 69 is the opening phrase when he says, but from now on, from now on. There's an indication in that phrase that a great change is taking place. It's occurring at this very moment. He will be put to death. He will rise from the dead. And he will ascend to his father. That is the change that is taking place. Which these guys didn't understand. That will lead to his ascension and sitting at the right hand of the father as the son of man. These events are imminent and will virtually change everything in this world. From that point forward, the world and history has been completely changed. You see, Jesus, as God, could see beyond his suffering and death. They could only see one thing, putting this guy to death so he's not a problem anymore. But Jesus sees the eventual outcome of what he's doing and that he will be given the power of his Father in heaven. This should recall to our minds verses from Philippians chapter 2, which we looked at this morning in my Sunday school class, as well as Hebrews 12, which, let me read this long passage to you from those two sections of Scripture. They say this, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance as a man, son of man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason... For this reason God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, fix your eyes upon Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith, who for the joy before him, for the joy before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. Well, this is offended the Sanhedrin. This guy who claims he's going to sit next to, the, to a Yahweh in heaven and wield divine authority, they couldn't take any more of this. And spontaneously, we read in verse 70, that they all yelled out and questioned him at the same time. Look at verse 70. And they all questioned him saying, Are you the Son of God then? Quit playing games with us. Are you claiming to be the Christ? Are you the Son of God? This is the second question that was posed to Jesus by the Sanhedrin. They wanted him to incriminate himself. We couldn't get him with false witnesses. We couldn't get him with any testimony. Let's get it out of his own mouth. That's what they were trying to do. The you here is plural, so we know that all of them were speaking with one voice when they asked the question, are you the son of God then? This is the question that has caused the death of thousands and thousands of Christian martyrs from the beginning of the church to our day. Who do you say that Jesus is? Are you the Son of God? Is he the Son of God? Do you remember at Columbine when those two psychotic boys walked around with guns killing fellow students? Rachel Scott and Cassie Burnell were students in the cafeteria there. Both of them were asked that question, do you believe in Jesus? Both answered yes and were shot and killed for their answer. (coughs) Excuse me. What about you? What do you say to that question? Is Jesus the Son of Man? Is he the Son of God? Did Jesus ever say that he was? Well, in the NASV, we read that he said to them, yes, I am. That's pretty straightforward. But the Greek doesn't make it as straightforward as that. They asked him directly if he was the Son of God, and he really responded, if you say so, then I agree with you. If that's what you're saying, 
He didn't want to give them the ammunition that they were looking for. They had to be culpable for their actions. And notice that they also changed it from the Son of Man to the Son of God. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying about the Son of Man. In that phrase, he's claiming a special relationship with God, that he is his one and only Son. So Jesus answers them, but in a mysterious, guarded way. So they send Jesus on from the trial, concluding that he is a blasphemer. In another gospel, we read that the high priest tears his clothes and demands that he be put to death. But Luke leads that out. Instead, he's taken to the Roman governor, who is pressured by the Jewish leadership to condemn Jesus. We read the testimony of the high priest in verse 71 where he says, What further do we need to have of testimony? Well, they haven't heard any anyway. For we have heard it directly with, for ourselves from his own mouth. They claim that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he claims to have the power of God. As you know, people often hear what they want to hear rather than the truth. Jesus never blasphemed here, but to them, because they did not understand the nature of the messianic office, office, they believed that he was blaspheming. Some people don't have a correct understanding of the Bible, and it often leads to misunderstanding. Definitions of things are very important. I've had people tell me before that I don't believe in miracles by things that I've said when I'm preaching. That's not true. I believe in miracles. It just depends on how you define a miracle. The Bible is very clear when it talks about miracles. God intervening in time and space and doing something that's impossible. Now, is a a birth of a child is miraculous or somebody, somebody surviving from cancer? We often call miraculous, but those aren't biblical miracles. So definitions of things are very important. Their definition of Messiah differed from the biblical definition of Messiah. Their definition was of a king ruling, coming to save them from their Roman conqueror. The biblical definition found in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and other places, Psalm 2 and Psalm 22, I should say, is of a suffering servant coming to die for the sins of mankind. Since they could not connect here on what the meaning of a Messiah was, it led to the death of Christ. Because they had an incomplete biblical view of who Jesus' person was. Well, what can we learn from this text? We all know about the denials of Christ. We've heard it over and over. We know about the cock crowing. We know that Peter denied our Lord three times. The truth is, we all deny Christ many more than three times in our daily lives, in our actions. But Peter's life was changed by his denials, and it could only be rectified by his remorse. We find the beginning of that remorse with his weeping bitterly. But that still wasn't enough to change the direction of his life. You know, you can come to the place where you repent of your sin, where you have remorse for your sin. You can even weep bitterly about something, and you can continue on doing the same old things, can't you? Just because we have an emotional breakdown and our feelings are touched doesn't mean that we're willing to change and live by biblical principles. I see that in Peter's life. He denies Christ three times. He recognizes that the Lord shows him his displeasure and he weeps bitterly, but he doesn't change. The Lord had to confront Peter three times. As you know from the book of John, three times he had to ask him, do you love me? Do you really love me, Peter? If the answer to that is yes, then why haven't you changed your behavior and do what I've called you to do is the implication of what the Lord was saying. 
Unfortunately, the Lord is not here present within our lives to confront us, to question us, to ask us if we really love him in person. So he requires that others do that. And this morning, my task is to ask you that. Do you really love the Lord Jesus? Do you really love the Lord Jesus? Do you really love the Lord Jesus? Then why do you continue to do what you do? Here we find in Peter's life the model for dealing with sin in our lives. He's the negative model. Jesus is the positive model. He's modeling for us the unfairness of life and how to deal with it. The truth is he was killed, suffered, arbitrarily, unfairly judged. And we see that he dealt with it in a way that honored his father and that he ultimately would be rewarded and given a name above all other names. How do we feel, how do we deal with the difficulties, the unfairness of life? Do we really love Jesus in and through those times? Are we really his servants? Others can do terrible things to us. Do we just give up on Christ? Do we just walk away? I'm done with Christianity. It doesn't work. That's what Peter did. He went back fishing. I'm done with this nonsense. Do you really love Jesus? Do you really love Jesus? If you do, you'll make it through those difficult days that all of us will suffer with, and you will serve him willingly as a bondservant. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, thank you for the life of Peter. We often learn to behave rightly through failure. The three steps forward, two steps back model. Help us, Lord, in our failures in this life to learn from them and to recommit ourselves to serving you. Not give up or turn away or quit. We know that the devil wants us to quit, that he tempts us, he sifts us, he attacks us. Help us, Lord, to move forward with you despite our failures, knowing that the grace of God covers all our sins. Help us, Lord, through the mercies of God, through the strengthening of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Word of God, to continue to move forward in our Christian lives as we follow Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.